Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Bravery comes in all shapes and sizes. It might be the kid who stands up to the bully at school or the person who asks their crush out on a date. Bravery doesn't have to mean putting one's life in danger. Of course, any action movie will tell you it means big muscles and even bigger guns. But one World War II soldier proved Hollywood all wrong. His was a story about bravery that was almost too good to be true. And his name was Leo Major. Major was born in 1921 in Massachusetts. His parents were French-Canadian, but his father had brought his mother stateside while he was working for the American Railroad Company. Before Leo turned one, Mr. Major moved everyone back home to Montreal, Canada. As he got older, though, the young Major didn't get along with his father and went to live with an aunt when he was just 14. There weren't many opportunities for work where he lived, but he did have a desire to show his father that he could make something of himself. So when he turned 19, he joined the Canadian Army. From the get-go, Major did more than make something of himself. He proved everyone that he was a force to be reckoned with. He stormed the beaches of Normandy in 1944 and single-handedly captured a German armored personnel carrier. Then he took out a handful of SS patrolmen a few days later, only to be severely injured by a phosphorus grenade thrown by the enemy. The explosion cost Major one of his eyes, after which he was told to go back to England. He was told he could no longer work in this condition, but he disagreed, saying he only needed one eye to shoot with, and he was allowed to stay. Major was hurt again in 1945 when the carrier he was riding was struck by a mine. The driver and the chaplain on board were killed, but Major survived with two broken ankles and a broken back that he refused to let fully heal. Against everyone's better judgment, he went right back to fighting. Nothing was going to keep him away. The Canadian Maverick returned to the front lines, He traveled to the Netherlands to help his fellow Canadians, as well as the Polish and British, clear the shipping route to Antwerp. The port there was instrumental in getting supplies to the Allies stationed north. The 7th Canadian Infantry Brigade took up a position just outside of the town of Zwal in Holland, but had no intel on the enemy forces already there. Major and his comrade, Corporal Wilfred Arsenault, volunteered to check things out and report back. They set out around 11 o'clock that night of April 13th, where they stumbled upon a German outpost. Corporal Arsenault was killed by several SS soldiers. Major returned fire and took them out before getting away. Armed with just a pair of guns and a bag of grenades, Major continued on to the empty's wall with one goal in mind, liberation. The citizens were all in their homes due to a town-wide curfew, but he needed a safe place where he could read the map in his jacket pocket. He knocked on a few doors and was ignored. No one would let him in, especially because, on first glance, he looked like a Nazi. He soon realized the only way he was going to get what he needed meant breaking into a house by force. His first attempt startled a young family with small children, but one glimpse of the Canadian flag on his uniform and they knew that he wasn't there to hurt them. Major studied his map with their blessing and then ventured back out into town. He managed to locate a machine gun outpost and capture the 10 soldiers inside using only his machine pistol and three grenades. He then found the German officers' quarters and convinced one of the senior officers that he was one of an entire Canadian army ready to take control of the town. The Germans could leave now with their lives 
or stay and face the consequences. Major even let him keep his gun as a show of good faith. And it worked. After locating the leader of the Dutch resistance, Major drove through town in a commandeered German military car, firing his machine gun at Nazi soldiers and vehicles along the way. Many of them had already fled, believing the Allies had arrived. Those who were still in the streets were gunned down by Major as he drove by. When the coast was finally clear, the resistance went to town hall and encouraged citizens to come out of hiding. Zwall was finally free. Leo Major had almost single-handedly liberated the town, capturing 93 German soldiers, and set the SS headquarters on fire. He had demonstrated bravery in the face of adversity many times before, never taking no for an answer and refusing to give up. But on the night of April 13, 1945, Leo Major became more than a brave soldier. He waged a one-man war on the Third Reich and turned himself into a living legend. His actions earned him the Distinguished Conduct Medal, as well as a pretty colorful nickname. They called him the One-Eyed Ghost. Our methods of communication are part of what sets us apart from other species. A written word has been a large part of how we communicate with others. Before technology, people frequently wrote in journals and to one another. In the entertainment world, musicians and authors wrote music and stories. Scholars and scientists passed along information and made critical notes. Businesses kept track of receipts and orders. All of this writing is how we've gained knowledge about civilizations throughout time and the world over. Census records, weather reports, news of the day. We owe much of what we've learned from the written word. And for as long as there have been letters, there have been people who decipher ancient languages no longer used. We've learned about historical events from history's most famous and about the lives of everyday people as well. Without someone to decipher ancient languages, though, much of what we know would only be an educated guess. According to experts in Assyriology, Adolf Leo Oppenheim had read more of the ancient language than any one of his generation. Like others in his field, he studied the history, the archaeological finds, and the language of Mesopotamia, a region that now covers Iraq and northeastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and parts of Iran. The language Oppenheim studied is called cuneiform, which is a set of symbols found in 15 or more languages in ancient times. Symbols were used to form words starting as far back as the Bronze Age, all the way through the Common Era. Cuneiform and Egyptian hieroglyphs are two of the earliest systems of recorded writing. And among his peers, no one was more qualified to read the 4,000-year-old clay tablet written around 1750 BC. The discovery had been made by British archaeologist Sir Leonard Woolley, who led an expedition with the University of Pennsylvania and British Museum in the Sumerian city of Ur. The crew had come across ruins during their 12-year dig from 1922 to 1934. The clay tablet had been part of other similar tablets found on the site. For years, the Babylonian tablets sat in storage until they became part of the British Museum's collection in 1953. But it wasn't until the 1960s before the tablets found their way to Oppenheim at the University of Chicago for translation. The tablets all contained similar messages, but two things were clear. The site had belonged to a copper merchant, and customers had written the tablets. Tablet writing, by the way, was no small feat. The letter writer had to make the tablet with clay and water, and while the tablet was still wet, the writer used a reed as a pen to inscribe the symbols onto the surface. 
Then the tablets were left to bake in the sun. The less important tablets were delivered and read, and then reused by soaking them in water. But the ones Wooly found had been kiln-fired. The people who had written the copper merchant had all taken considerable time and effort to make and write the notes, much less sending a messenger to deliver them. In particular, Oppenheim noticed how lengthy the note was from one customer he identified as a man named Nani. It's not clear exactly where Nani lived in relation to the archaeological site, although he mentioned that the copper merchant was in enemy territory. Oppenheim and the other experts also determined that Nani's clay tablet predated the others that Woolley's team had found. Before Oppenheim passed away at the age of 70 in 1974, he wrote a book on clay tablets that he transcribed through the years, including the ones Woolley had found. As it turns out, Nani's tablet is the very first of its kind in history. He'd been one of three customers who had either not received copper ingots from the merchant or had received subpar copper. That's right. Long before the days of customer service, Nani had written the oldest known customer complaint. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.